0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We have been uh, going through 2 Corinthians, which is uh, quite different from 1 Corinthians, as we've noticed, whereas 1 Corinthians, he's clearly signals when he's changing topics, so it's an easy book to outline. Second Corinthians, you get to that book and you, you don't exactly know how to outline it and where the, to even divide the passages. And Sometimes, like today, it would probably be good if there wasn't a chapter division between chapter 4 and 5, but as you'll see when we go through it, that's because uh, Second Corinthians seems to be more of an emotional book than a. a I mean, it's logical, of course, but He's not trying to lay out a theological argument. He's trying to restore his relationship to the Corinthians and, um, who had some bad feelings towards him, some bad behavior that he had to correct, and some false apostles among them that were undermining his authority and work with them. And so he's trying to correct those things, repair his relationship with the Corinthians. And uh, he had sent Titus and to them as a messenger and, and received news back, good news back from him that rejoiced his heart and comforted him. We remember that from early in Second Corinthians. And so um, he has a, a more of a joyful tone here. And uh, what he's finding himself having to do, though, throughout the uh, epistle is to continue to defend his apostleship. He's the real thing. He's the genuine apostle. But <clears throat> part of that is explaining the nature of the gospel ministry so that they can understand what the ministry is really all about. And so we saw the discussion in chapter three about the new covenant and the new covenant ministry, and he's a minister of the new covenant. And um, he, he talked and raised the subject about his sufficiency and why he doesn't get discouraged because of all the difficult things he's going through because uh, he's found his sufficiency in God, as we all should. And you'll see that uh, he's really continuing the thought of that sufficiency and why he doesn't lose heart in ministry. <clears throat> Last time we had to end at verse 12 in chapter 4, but today we're going to pick it up then in verse 13. So again, this is a place which was almost an artificial division, but um, we just chopped it here and uh, we'll continue to where I think will be a pretty good place to pick to end. And he is talking here in this section about the motivation of his ministry. And the and part of his motivation is that he has an assurance of his resurrection in the future. That would encourage anybody who's under the strain of ministry or any kind of trial. And he states that assurance in verses 13 and 14, um, where he says, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore, and therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore speak. So he says we have the same spirit, I think, of the psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 10, who was talking about uh, giving thanks for deliverance from death. And so Paul has that same spirit of thanksgiving because he knows he'll be delivered from death through the resurrection, which is what he goes on to explain in verse. 14, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you, for all things are for your sake, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. So Paul had just talked in the previous section about how this treasure of the gospel message and the the glorious gospel of jesus christ is in cracked vessels and these vessels these cracked vessels our bodies are dying and he had told them that the more he dies the more he's able to uh, kind of paradoxically give life to them and so his suffering that is killing him is bringing life to those to whom he's ministering and that's what he says in the verse 12 that leads up to this, so then death is working in us, but life in you. So now, st- talking about death can be a very discouraging topic, but he wants to bring encouragement, he finds encouragement in the reality that his body is dying. Mm-hmm. Now, we all, know, <clears throat> we all know that one day we will die if the Lord doesn't return, and, um, and we'll have a resurrected body. I think Paul's expectation, as we can find in many passages, was that the Lord would return and and rapture the church away, and he would get his resurrected body then. But I think here his discussion would include anybody who dies uh, before that event. And so what happens then? Um, So he has the confidence of the resurrection that just as Jesus was raised up, so also will those who believe in him. Um, One thing I I, I really like about, uh, he says, raise up with him and will present us with you. Uh, This idea of being presented before the Lord, I think, is the idea of the judgment seat of Christ presentation. That idea of presenting and the word present is used in a number of other passages, talking about when the bride is presented to uh, Jesus Christ, for example. and Colossians 1, Ephesians 5, and those all seem to refer to the judgment seat of Christ. That's when we'll present it for an evaluation as believers from Him. And He knows that that day is coming for Him and His readers here. Uh, I like ver- the, what verse 15 says that all things are for your sake. I think all the suffering and, and, uh, and the future is all going to work for them for their sakes. <clears throat> That grace having spread through the many. I I love that phrase, that grace having spread. Grace is used in a lot of different ways in the Bible. Of course, it always means a free gift. But here he's talking about grace spreading. And uh, I think, you know, in these days when we've seen a virus spread so quickly, it's nice to know that something good can spread quickly also. Um, Talk about... um, operation warp speed i don't know if grace was spreading at warp speed uh, like our vaccines did but uh, it was spreading through the apostle paul and his generation while he was here and if people understand grace i think it's very very contagious and that's what i tried to uh, witness to yesterday morning when i was teaching uh, these friends in africa these pastors in Africa, how they got that message and they were rejoicing in it and they were wanting to share it now with the churches in the north of the country. So it, just, it, it spreads to the many and that causes thanksgiving to the glory of God. When people understand grace, they grow thankful for it and they thank God for it and, and that just glorifies God uh, and adds to his glory. <clears throat> and it goes back to that theme of not losing heart in verse 16. And with all the things that we know he's been through and have been accused of, uh, Paul is able to find cause not to lose heart. His body is decaying, he's being persecuted, he's being uh, stoned, beaten, chased, but he doesn't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, Paul knows that his outward man is perishing, as you and I both, no, also, and yet, the reality is, is while we weaken and decay on the outside, the the inner man can be renewed day by day by the work of the Spirit. We talked about that in three eighteen, how we're transform transformed from glory to glory. And so, it's a it's a reason why he doesn't lose heart, um, because he knows in verse seventeen that. Any light affliction will have an eternal weight of glory, he calls it. Now, it's, it's amazing to me that Paul would say our light affliction. Because when we get to chapter 11, we'll see that he talks about being stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, flogged, uh, left for dead. And he calls that a light affliction. So, what have you been through lately? You stub your toe this morning, I mean, what have you been through for the sake of the gospel? Uh, this light affliction, he calls it, but he finds, he takes heart in it because he talks about it will lead to an eternal weight of glory. There's something that is unseen in the future, he knows is waiting for him, uh, and it's, he calls it an eternal weight. Uh, it, I think what he probably has in mind here is the Hebrew word for something that is that is important or uh, heavy in importance. It, it was literally the word heavy they would use. Kavad, I believe, is the, the Hebrew word. And that's how they describe the weightiness or importance of something. And he's talking about an eternal weight of glory, meaning that it's going to be it's going to be important, it's going to be heavy uh, in in honor and um, a great reward for those who suffer in this life. I don't think he's just talking about, he's not necessarily talking about physical suffering and ailments, but I think the suffering that we go through for Christ especially, I think that would be reinforced by Romans chapter 8, verse 17. (laughs) But it's such an imbalance between the afflictions of this world that he sees and the weight of glory in the next world. If you would picture a balance and how a balance works, you know, with the scales. If you take the momentary light affliction, let's take a grain of sand and put it on this side of the scale. And he sa- and then put a bar of gold which weighs 27.4 pounds on this side of the scale. <clears throat> I think that's the comparison he has in mind. This life and our afflictions are like a grain of sand compared to eternity and what we'll experience there. It's beyond our comprehension. He talks about things not seen uh, and walking by faith, but we have the faith that it's gonna be like that bar of gold that's gonna really make our afflictions look like nothing. No matter what suffering we've been through for the cause of Christ, or even in our physical bodies, no matter what suffering we've been through, it's just gonna evaporate in the weight of the wonderful glory that we're going to see there. And that's why he says in verse 18, that we don't look at the things which are seen. Obviously, he's not. He's blind to his own suffering because he says, calls him a light affliction. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are are unseen are eternal. So he's telling us not to focus in our gaze and look upon, and the word uh, look at here in verse 18 is the word um, for really looking deep into something, not just seeing it but looking deeper into something, we get the word scope from it today in the English language. But his perspective on suffering is such that he doesn't focus on today's suffering in this life, but he sees with eyes of faith the eternal weight of glory that's coming. And that perspective keeps him from getting discouraged. So, You know, you've gone through times of discouragement when you focus on the circumstances around you. Um, You know, financial discouragement, uh, children, your husband wife, things aren't going well, and you get terribly discouraged. But if we focus only on, on this world, we can lose heart quickly. But Paul says that he takes heart because with his eyes of faith, He can see things that are not seen in this life. These are temporary things, but what he tries to focus on is the eternal. John Calvin said, not that I always agree with him, but John Calvin said something, I think very nicely here. He said, a moment is long if we look at the things around us, but once we have raised our minds to heaven, a thousand years begin to look like a moment. Once we raise our eyes to heaven, a thousand years here looks like a moment. Kind of echoes what Peter said about God: with God, a day is as a thousand years. So perhaps you're suffering under something that seems interminable and will never end, and just keeps going and going and com- coming back and haunting you. But in the eyes of eternity, it's just but for a moment. I think some of the things we see here that we could apply to our lives is, you know, Paul says, having believed, therefore I speak, he has the boldness to speak because of his assurance of resurrection in the future. And um, just like the psalmist was giving thanks for deliverance from death, I think we should have that same boldness to speak about the future with God, the resurrection from the dead and the eternity that we'll enjoy with him people need to hear it people need to be reminded about our eternal destination Um, and there will be a reunion for christians with christ at the judgment seat of christ uh, but others may not be there so that we should find the boldness to speak about that and remind them of that day of resurrection and a coming judgment it was on the easter sunday a couple few weeks ago um, I was driving to church and I was going to bring the early message so just about as I was almost turning into the church parking lot I get a message from my friend and uh, this is a good friend I've done a lot with he was we went to church together when I was in Cleburne and he was the Iwana commander and our children were friends with his children our little girls with his little girls and kind of grew up for a while till we left and started burleson and he says i'm really in pain would you please pray for me uh my daughter angie died yesterday 40 years old leaving a 12 year old behind little girl that i remember as a sweet little girl and 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 now she's she's dead and this is this is what he tells me i called him as soon as i got the message and talked to him this is what I'm talking about when I pull him to the parking lot to do an Easter service. And I said, well, you know, I, I think I said something to him like, well, you know, if there's any day that you have to face a death, today's a good day. If there's a good day to be reminded that it's not the last word, it's not the final thing. And that's really kind of how I had to, had to start out my, my uh, message that morning because I was just all processing this, and we were singing songs about the resurrection, I just told the people, I said, look, I'm really having a hard time processing this because my friend's daughter, our little girl's friend, died yesterday, Um, but this is when Easter is just, it's not just another holiday, but really means something to us, that a tragedy like that has a bright future, because she she was a believer. through the children's ministry of the church at the time. So speak out about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It brings hope to people. And and like it it says about this grace message spreading up there in verse 15, uh, glorify God by spreading the message of grace that causes people to thank him wherever we go. Uh, When people understand grace, it brings, I call it, a smile to their heart. And they're thankful and they glorify God for it. And then keep your eye on the prize. Uh, All your suffering for Christ will be worth it. And the greater the suffering, the greater the glory, the greater the reward. Uh, Glory perhaps speaks of the capacity to enjoy God. And in that future, we will have a greater capacity to enjoy Him. So live with eternity in mind and keep your focus there when things get discouraging in this life. Look up like John Calvin advised, raise our minds to heaven. And a thousand years will begin to look like a moment now in chapter 5 again there probably shouldn't be a chapter division here um, because Paul is discussing the same thing he's talking about resurrection and here he talks about a new body that we will have and so this is connected to what he's just said He's giving reasons why we should not lose heart in the midst of this discussion about dying and death, Uh, and he's still talking about the hope of a resurrection and life. And so, not everybody will be alive at the rapture. Some will die before, obviously, and this is what what they can expect if death comes to a believer before Christ comes for us. And so, in verses 1 through 5, he talks about the nature of this guarantee that they have the guarantee of a new body. Uh, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, in verse 1, 4, you know, whenever you read the word for, you want to look back to see what he's talking about. And I think it goes back to verse 13, or verse 18. why he doesn't look at things eternal and why he can still find encouragement and not lose heart. Um, There's a contrast between the things that are seen and unseen, between our present body and our future bodies. And notice that in verse one, he talks about our earthly body, this earthly house, he calls it, is a tent. But you know that tents are temporary, except for the ones we saw on the freeway today, maybe. (laughs) They might be up there, an extended period of time but usually when i'm putting up a tent it means i'm staying for the weekend or camping for a short time and and just like the tabernacle was temporary so in general we think of tents as a temporary dwelling place and that's what he calls our body and if it's destroyed we have a building from god which is going to be a new body it's a but it's a house not made with hands i think when he says not made with hands i think that uh The idea is it's not part of this creation, but part of a new creation that that God is going to do in us and for us. Now, the one question that is often raised here is, is he talking about a resurrection body that we'll have in the future when we are raised from the graves to be united with our spirits, like at the rapture or, uh, yeah, the rapture when the dead will rise, and then they will have a new body. Or is he talking about an intermediate body? Let's call it maybe a pre-resurrection body body. Uh, in other words, when we die now, we go to be with the Lord and we have some kind of bodily form that is not part of this creation, but God makes it special for us. There's, there's a little bit of de- debate in there about what you, what's he talking about, a future resurrection body or the body that you get when you die? <clears throat> well. Uh, I think there's some clues that we'll see in the text here that I tend to believe he's talking about the body that we get when we die today, if I were to die today, um, because he talks later about being absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, and then he talks about not being naked, but we'll be clothed. In other words, there's not going to be a period where we're going to be floating around as a spirit, like, uh, like Casper the ghost, without a body. There's going to, he's going to take care of that. And then when you think about the transfiguration, you saw Moses and Elijah come back in the body, right? They had bodies. Uh, Jesus had a body. Um, so we know that there's some form there after death. And I think that's what he's talking about. Not that it really makes a big difference here. But let's go on to verse 2. For in this we groan. He talks about <clears throat> in this body we're groaning. I don't think groaning is... The idea of complaining about anything—it's just—it's just, uh, it's just um, a longing, a yearning for something else. Uh, we yearn to be clothed with a habitation, a building, a a body from heaven. Um, and by the way, he says it's from heaven. And and the body—we know we have will have new bodies in the kingdom on earth, but this seems to be talking about our experience in heaven. Um, So we won't just be floating around, but we will be clothed. God will have some kind of form of body for us, which will be made special for us. So verse three, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So when we leave this tent, we go into a new body. We won't be embarrassingly naked, without a body, for any period of time. And um, so I think that the groaning here is a groaning of anticipation and yearning for that new body. It's not groaning and complaining about our old bodies, although we do that quite a bit, don't we? But more, it's it's a yearning for that new body. So, for example, if you're, you have a bad knee and your knee is hurting, and I speak from experience, uh, you know, you can focus on the knee and complain about the knee and the pain, and 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 focus on that or you can yearn for that new knee that you're going to get after surgery and look forward to being relieved from pain and being able to walk and uh, there's two ways of thinking about it so where are you going to fix your mind you're going to fix your mind on the present pain or on the future new body i think that's what he's saying and um so in this tent he talks about in uh, verse four we're we're burdened um, because we just want to be clothed with that uh, immortality, swallowed up by life, he calls it. Um, Our mortality, our weaknesses, our death, our uh, susceptibility to death is swallowed up by life, totally engulfed by the new life that he has for us. And of course, he gives credit to God because, verse 5, now he who has prepared us, for this very thing is God. And not only does He prepare us, it says, verse five, but He's given us a guarantee, which is the Holy Spirit. The word guarantee there is a word that is used for a pledge or down payment. Um, It's it's something, when you make a down payment or deposit on something or pledge, it's it's binding and it makes you obligated to fulfill the rest of the commitment like an engagement ring when you, even if you were to get, give an engagement ring, fellows, you're, you're promising, or both really are promising yourselves to one another. And that's your pledge. <clears throat> well, we have the Holy Spirit as God's pledge and promise that we'll have a new resurrected body. And um, we have the, His Spirit that will continue with us, not only through in this life, but through the experience of death, and into the new life the new body that he has for us and so that's how Paul can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and uh, he talks about the, also the uh, new body in, at the end of 1st Corinthians chapter 15 <clears throat> so he has great confidence in this guarantee verses 6 through 8 talks about that confidence he says so we're always confident knowing that while we're at home in the body We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So this is his source of confidence, is that he knows that when he's in the body, he's absent from the Lord, and therefore vice versa. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord we would say it's a binary choice. There's two choices. You're either here or there in His presence. You're either in this body or you're before the Lord. There is no in-between. There is no waiting period, as, as some religious and theological schools teach. There's no period of soul rest where you're not conscious. The impression the Scriptures clearly leave us is that we're either here or there in Christ's presence, one or the other. And that's why he says we walk by faith, not by sight. We know that that's the truth, and so faith helps us live and face the difficulties of this life with that hope, because we know He's with us now. He'll never leave us, and we'll be with Him someday. And that should be a great comfort to us all. So, you know, when you're ailing physically about something, Uh, or or suffering that you might be going through, especially for Christ's sake, Um, don't just complain about it or groan about it or focus on that, but yearn for the better life that's coming, the better body that's coming, the better condition that's coming. And then that way we can live confidently and face death confidently. We don't have to live in fear. Um, You know, there's so many people that have been living in fear this year. And and rightly so, because we've had a pandemic, but some people have been living maybe with too much fear and not enough trust in God. Not that we should be careless, but um, after all, if the worst were to happen and someone were to catch uh, COVID, for example, and die, if the worst were to happen to a believer, they would just get a new body in the Lord's presence. And that's not all that bad, is it? It's a comfort to us. And uh, we, should, we should preach that, and teach that, and give people assurance from that. I have a friend who, his brother this week, uh, about a week ago, uh, nine days ago, his younger brother uh, died suddenly of a brain aneurysm, uh, totally unexpected. And he had tried witnessing to his brother before, and he had no indication his brother ever trusted in Jesus Christ. So he was asked to do the funeral. Uh, which took place uh, Thursday. And he said, please pray for me. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say about my brother. I don't know what to say that the family's not going to get all mad at me. What they want me to say is that he's in heaven and all that, but I don't know that. And so he didn't have the message of hope and confidence that Paul has here to know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I I can understand his dilemma. I don't know that I've ever had to do a funeral for an unbeliever. Before, and I hope I never have to do a funeral for an unbeliever. I don't mind doing funerals for believers at all because I can I can be positive and people are listening. But for an unbeliever, I don't know exactly what I would say. So we did pray for him quite a bit, and I haven't heard haven't checked in with him to see how things went. But I feel for him. But isn't it wonderful though that you, you know, to be to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, just like that, boom boom and uh, another story i don't know if i've told you this before because it's i don't it's been a while but we have a friend and um that was our church and his father was elderly in his 80s and his father lost his wife uh, his mother and um, he became a widower and uh, but while his wife was still alive he bought an airplane kit and he began to put this airplane together and his wife died in the meantime and he finally put it together about was about six months ago or something he finally finished it he had rented a hangar out at our little local airport and he finished this airplane and he went up he's 87 years old he went up on his maiden flight and and he said i got some i have a problem here i'm turning back around and he didn't make it to the airport And he crashed right near our home and died instantly he was an elder in the church his church and we went to the funeral it was a wonderful funeral His son got up there and shared this testimony. He said, he said, well, I know that when my father's plane hit that ground, the first thing he heard was, well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus. The second thing he heard was from my mother saying, I told you about that damn airplane. (laughs) That's what he said. (laughs) But you know, the funeral, the whole funeral had a light air about it like that. Everybody was joking and telling funny stories about Earl because, because it's okay. He, he hit the ground. It was a terrible accident. He's 87 years old. What a way to go, in my opinion, but straight into the presence of the Lord. You know, no suffering, no lingering, just straight into the presence of the Lord, and now they can talk about it and even joke about it. Uh, of course, they were sorrowing, but... You know, it just, the funeral just didn't have a, that dark, gloomy tone to it. It was, it was bright, and people were, <laughs> were just telling funny stories and things like that. What a difference. So face death confidently. Don't live in fear. And then in uh, verses 9 through 11, there is a fear that we should have. And he talks about the fear, kind of fear we should have. He says in verse nine, therefore, therefore, because of the resurrection body that we're going to have, and because we have this confidence and pledge from God, um, because, uh, therefore, because uh, he's, he's done all this wonderful future lined up for us, got it all lined up for us, we should make it our aim, our purpose, our goal, whether present or absent, whether we're here, um, I think is what he, he's saying. Maybe he's saying whether present in this life or, or absent from this life or whether I'm with you or not with you, to be well-pleasing to him, to God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known by God, and I also trust. Are well known in your consciences. Well, our faith tells us that at all times, wherever we are, we're in the presence of the Lord. We're with Him, or He's with us. And that motivates Paul. He says that should motivate us to be pleasing to Him, live a life that's pleasing to Him. And when verse 10, when He says we must all appear, He's talking about Himself included. So here's a judgment for Christians, which you are aware of called the Judgment Seat of Christ, or in the original language, the bema, which is the platform of judgment in a city where people would come and would be tried, or cases would be heard, and by the governor or the ruler or the king, um, whoever's in power, and the case would be heard and the sentence would be pronounced. And so there has to be an evaluation there at the Judgment Seat of Christ. And they've excavated some of these bema seats um, in some of these village towns and so forth. I've seen similar things in India where they have a platform in the middle of a courtyard and the king would come out and that's where he would sit and they would bring cases before him and try them. But he says we must all, so that that's everybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ is going to appear before him uh, That could be the presentation that we mentioned earlier, and there we're going to receive something from Jesus, either good, uh, we're going to receive something for the good things that were done in the body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So this is, I believe, where rewards will be meted out to those who have earned rewards or deserve rewards, and I think You know, you have an understanding and agreement about that. Uh, But what does he mean uh, when he says that each one will receive things according to whether whether it's good or bad? So what do you receive if you've not been so good? If you've lived an irresponsible Christian life, you've done a lot of bad things instead of a lot of good things. If your focus was on this world or not the next world, what happens at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, I don't know exactly, and it doesn't tell us, does it? It just says you're going to be um, compensated for whether you've done good or bad. Now, there's some people who have taken this idea and they've taken it way, way too far, saying that, you know, people will be excluded from the millennial kingdom or people will be banished in the Christian purgatory or people will be punished for their sins. Um, But I don't think that that the idea of punishment is here because Jesus has already been punished for our sins. But yet, I do believe there will be consequences at the judgment seat of Christ for those who have lived irresponsibly or unfaithfully. It just doesn't tell us what that is. It could be simply the loss of rewards and the regret that a person feels. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to impose any punishment on them. I don't think that's what it's saying. But if we've not lived a good life and suddenly the light of God is shed on our life, we're going to impose upon ourselves the regret that we'll feel for not having done the right thing. that makes sense? So it's like somebody who goes to school and at the end of the school term, uh, they watch their classmates graduate with honor and... They graduate without honor. Well, they're happy to graduate. They did enough to get by and graduate, but they're thinking, they could be thinking, well, if I had just done a little bit more, if I just didn't go to so many parties, if I didn't stay up late night binge watching Netflix. I don't know what college kids do. <laughs> you don't want to know what college kids do. Then I could, I could have graduated with honor. And so there's going to be some regret there, but how long is it going to last? I don't think a person's going to live and regret all of his, her life because of that, but there'll be some regret there, and it's going to be self-imposed. It's not the college that's going to be punishing them for them. It's just giving them what they deserve. And so there'll be some at the judgment seat of Christ who will get what they deserve, rich rewards, and some who will get less rewards, and some may get no rewards. And the Bible does talk about regret. It does talk about shame at it it's coming, 1 John 2:28, I believe. Um, so there is a negative side to the judgment seat of Christ, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be happy to be there. We're not going to be filled with joy for all of eternity. There may be a moment of regret. I don't know how long it will last. I can't see it lasting very long. Um, but there's going to be some regret when that wood, hay, and straw is burned up, we're judged by fire, but saved, yet so as through that fire, First Corinthians three, fifteen says. Now, Paul ends this section by saying in verse 11, because knowing this then, that God is going to bring all things to light and he's going to judge all things, knowing the terror of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting phrase that he uses, terror of the Lord. Um, he uses it also in Hebrews 10.31, um, I think where he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, I believe that that's talking to believers about the judgment seat of Christ also. So there is some kind of fear associated with the judgment seat of Christ. We, some people just say, well, it's a reverence, uh, and that's one meaning of the word fear. It seems to be a little stronger than that uh, in Hebrews, where it's a fearful thing if these Hebrew Christians turn back to Judaism and he realizes that might be a fearful thing if we don't live responsibly and therefore he says we persuade men now what does he mean when we persuade men i've normally taken this to mean that because paul knows that there's a judgment coming he's going out and persuaded people to come to christ and to know them and tried to fulfill his responsibility which we'll read later in chapter 5, as an ambassador for Christ and spreading the message of reconciliation. Um, it could be also that he's talking about, he's, he's persuading them uh, about his integrity and apostolic authority. And and he, wants the, he knows that the Corinthians are going to face the judgment seat of Christ. And so knowing that they could be in for a fearful judgment, he is persuading them about who he is and his, motives and his integrity so that's another way of looking at this passage it may not be an evangelistic passage but we could be talking about persuading the christians there in Corinth so either way Paul sees the judgment seat of Christ as looming and something a place where he will have to give an account for his life as we all will and that is a motivation for him and his ministry and what he's going to do in ministry with the Corinthians. So, um, another, inter- another interpretation I thought about, but I didn't find any support for this among any, any of the books I read, was that knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord would refer to the terror that faces unbelievers. And that's why he persuades people to become Christians. Um, so, I didn't find Any any books that uh, supported that view? Maybe I didn't didn't look at them all, so there could be somebody that takes that. But that just thought occurred to me, and I never considered that before. But it seems to me that uh, he knows this. We know the judgment seat of Christ is coming. That we have to give an account. That God will take into consideration all our good things and all our bad things. Good things obviously will be rewarded. Bad things somehow will be dealt with, um, but it's still a time of hope and he's, the eternal weight of glory can still apply to those who um, are Christians who pass in to eternity. But the key thought I think for us today is, as we close, is that the judgment seat of Christ should be a motivation to us to, as to how we live our lives today and uh, how we handle our situations how we minister how we treat one another um, knowing that someday god will ask us to give an account for all the good things we've done as well as uh, all the bad things somehow will be dealt with so i don't think we should live in a dread of the of the judgment seat of christ or fear of the judgment seat of christ uh in the sense that you know we're we're going to really be whipped there um i don't think that's what he's saying but when you face a holy God and, and realize that you didn't always do the right things that would please a holy God, there should be some sense of fear in the sense of maybe a little bit of, I don't know what to call it, apprehension, maybe be a softer word, um, and take it seriously and live in light of the fact that we face that judgment seat of Christ. And the last word, the judgment seat of Christ is a doctrine that I find all through the scriptures, from Matthew to Revelation, the judgment seat of Christ, and yet it's a doctrine that's not taught by many theologies and, and um, point of views, theological point of views. But it's a very, very important doctrine for us who are believers. Um, it's not just heaven or hell. There's, there's another judgment, and that's a judgment for Christians. So we're not just waiting for that final judgment. We, of all, people with the great white throne, that's for unbelievers. There is another judgment for us who are believers at the Bama Seat of Christ. So let's live responsibly and, um, and minister to people responsibly because uh, a great day is coming. And uh, with that though is always the hope, the wonderful hope of a new body and the resurrection in the presence of the Lord and that's not a bad thing. So as uh, as much as the uh, judgment seat of Christ, some could use it to make it a negative thing, it's not a bad thing to be in the presence of Jesus Christ with a new body. So that's about all I have. If you have any questions or comments, certainly welcome. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.